Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast season two. Today's episode features Mark Higgs. He's a friend of Jeremy Bamber and an independent campaigner with his own ideas based on his findings of the case. In this episode, he explains more about his involvement and gives his own perspective of the importance of Jeremy's conviction and shares his experience of asking Essex police officers about the case. My name is Mark Higgs and I've been asked by the the Jeremy Bamber campaign team to conduct um, an interview. Uh, Unfortunately, there was nobody available to actually interview me, so they've um, sent me some questions via email that I could uh, hopefully put to myself and answer myself, which I said I was willing to do. So here I am, and hopefully I'm going to answer some questions that the campaign team are going to construct into some kind of interview or something like that. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know whether or not they're going to use it, but give you my time, which is no problem. First, they've sort of uh, asked me, you know, just to sort of review who I am and how I uh, came to know Jeremy Bamber and how long I've been involved in uh, the Jeremy Bamber case. I, I describe it as Bambergate. You know, I think that one word fulfills what's really the case is about and what Jeremy's situation is about. But I'll, I'll go into that later. I'm actually British. I don't live in the UK. Um, I've been involved in the case um, for quite a number of years now. And I initially got interested when I saw the video on the Guardian website that showed uh, some of the basic evidence around the case. And what it was very, very clear is there was more to the case than met the eye. Either there was some other evidence that would clearly show that this guy wasn't innocent and something that wasn't being shown on the Guardian website, or there was something very, very sinister about the case. And you know, that sort of got my interest. And uh, what I actually did, which was probably a bit naive at the time, is I actually tried to locate and find and contact some of the officers that were actually inside the house back in 1985, part of the, the, the raid team and some of the other officers and things like that, and, and asked them exactly what did happen. And I, I very, very quickly um, received contact from Essex Police um, it was actually contacting somebody who wasn't in England, so it wasn't within their jurisdiction, in a very, very threatening way. And, and they made it very, very clear that, you know, what I was doing wasn't welcome, which actually, actually motivated me even more. It wasn't a very um, smart thing for Essex police to do, and they, they left me alone after that. So that's who I am. Um, the questions I've got, um, and there's, there's a number of questions. I'm actually going to change them. One of the questions is, if people are listening who don't know much about the case, what would you say to them if you want them to find out more or they wanted to help? Um, another question they've got is, have you made any attempts to obtain evidence from police witnesses? If so, tell us about the responses you receive, which um, maybe I'll deal a little bit with. Um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give people a very, very simple way to understand the case. And I'm not going to talk in detail about the evidence. There is quite a lot that's available online, but I see the case as a simple way to understand it, is three critical points. And I almost see them as a a sort of a a pyramid. And the first point that people need to understand is exactly who is Jeremy Bamba. Now, a lot of people will tell you about, you know, his past and where he went to school and and, and some stuff about him. But the the critical thing to know about Jeremy Bamba is there's 85 prisoners in British prisons, 85,000 prisoners currently, roughly. Um, Out of those 85,000 prisoners, there's about 50 who have a full life tariff prisoners. So the the, the really bad ones, supposedly, um, that have done, convicted of of very terrible crimes. 
And out of those 50 or so, there's about 10, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into detail with sort of numbers, but there's about 10 that have received their sentence directly from the Home Secretary. And Jeremy's one of those, and Jeremy's the only one that consistently over a 30-year period, more than 30 years, has said he's innocent. So Jeremy Bamber is a very, very critical guy, because if he'd ever turned out that he was innocent, it would say something very, very serious about the justice system, the police system, the appeals system, and also the government, and I'll explain why that is. So that's who Jeremy Bamber is. He's a, a really critical person. And I regard him as the uh, most important prisoner in the British justice system for the last hundred years. And a very, very useful person, a very, very, you know, positive story in some ways, not, not in all aspects. The second most important thing to understand about Jeremy Bamber or the case, and you can use these as a, a sort of a roadmap to understanding other parts of the case. The second most important thing is Jeremy, if innocent, cannot be convicted through a mistake or negligence. It would need to be that he was framed by a police force and that was covered up by a government. And the reason being is, is particularly about what actually happened. Initially, the police uh, on the night responded to a, what they believed to be a hostage situation and they surrounded the farmhouse with a firearms team. Nobody was allowed anywhere near it. They were very concerned that Jeremy's sister would come out with one of the, the, the multiple of weapons that was inside the farmhouse. And they weren't particularly well equipped for that. They didn't have uh, the, the things that a modern firearms team have of, of bulletproof jackets and things like that, or night vision or, or any other things. They, they were quite basically equipped there. And everything was written down and everything was watched. So if anybody was moving inside the farmhouse, it would definitively mean that Jeremy Bamber was innocent and couldn't have murdered the person in the farmhouse. Now, there's lots of other evidence. There's time of death. There's DNA evidence from night dresses. There's uh, communication reports. There was a, an open phone line which acted like a bug inside the house. So if there's any noise of a human moving around inside the house before the police enters, it would mean definitively Jeremy Bamboo was innocent. If anybody was seen moving, if the police communicated with anybody inside the house, it would mean Jeremy Bamboo was innocent. And the police wouldn't be able to construe that in any other way. It would mean that they framed him. Okay, that's the, the second critical point that people need to understand about the case. And the last critical point about the case is that everything was written down on the night. The way the police operate, they have notebooks. Uh, there was lots of reports made about communications and things like that. There was obviously recordings of phone lines. There was a crime scene, so there was lots of pictures. There were audio tapes made on dictaphones and things like that. There were recordings of the communications that the, the firearms team made as they went in the house, and those were transcribed and things like that. So the, the third critical point is that people coming to the case need to understand is that to find the answer of who's telling the truth um, is very, very simple. It just really involves opening some cardboard boxes. Um, you know, if you, you think about, you know, the MH370 case, you know, you've got to find this airplane at the bottom of the sea somewhere that's lost and find the data recorders to try and get to the truth of what happened. And, and that's a lot more expensive and a lot harder to achieve. Jeremy's case is, is really easy. It's, it's simply about opening some cardboard evidence boxes and reading the original handwritten officers' reports who were at the scene, you know, very much in the same way that was done with the Hillsborough case. Um, so as a sort of summary of the case, those three points, if you, you remember those three points, can allow you to, to fully interpret the case and, and not get lost in, in all the conflicting opinions and things like that. It's, it's a really simple case if you understand those critical three points. 
And you know, this is, you, you see this thing behind me, this is, is what it says, it's not very clear. This is probably the, the, the critical question that people need to ask themselves. You know, it's not whether or not Jeremy Bamber is innocent or guilty, it's whether or not Essex police framed Jeremy Bamber. It's, it's a lot more of a, a relevant question. And I'm gonna hold that up a few more times to remind people um, of that sort of question. So as long as you've got those three points in your head, you can understand um, a lot more about the evidence, you know, who's, who's withholding the evidence and who's, you know, Jeremy's consistently wanted all the evidence out, you know, things like that. I'll sort of talk about some other things of, about maybe, let's, let's, let's still in detail with what actually happened inside the farmhouse. Let's, you know, tell it to you in, in sort of detail so people maybe can understand a little bit more about, you know, the case. Um, obviously, this goes to the, the other question that was asked, have you made any attempts to obtain evidence from police witnesses? I've had contacted quite a number of people over the years with sort of um, some varying sort of responses and things like that. I'm not going to go into detail. I, I don't need to. All I'm going to sort of say is, is really my interpretation or, or my understanding of, of what actually happened. And obviously, that's been based on, on a lot of the, the things that I've done in Barsas. Obviously, everything that I say is is my own opinion. You can take it or leave it. I'm not overly bothered. But I'll tell you in sort of detail what actually happened. You know, obviously, if you've read the evidence, you understand that um, the police were called to the farmhouse. They understood it was a siege situation. Jeremy also arrived shortly after the police did. They surrounded the farmhouse. They waited till daylight and then they entered the farmhouse, supposedly finding everybody dead. And then five weeks later, after they thought uh, Sheila was responsible. They actually changed the direction of the case and said Jeremy is responsible, and evidence was supposedly found that that showed that, and that's the controversy with the case. Um, what actually happened is obviously police responded to initially a, a call from Jeremy's dad, which has been over the years uh, tried to cover up. Obviously, point three. I, I remind people that if if this is in debate, then Essex Police would release the original handwritten reports from. The, uh, the phone calls that were made and when they released cars to the scene. But effectively, when police arrived at the farmhouse, they were very, very concerned because nobody in the farmhouse uh, from the two adults and the two other kids, there was no noise of kids crying. There was no shouts or, or attempts for communication at the two adults. And it was known that the person inside the farmhouse was heavily armed. The police arrived. They didn't have uh, the sort of modern equipment that a firearms response team and the training that a, a modern police forces given to deal with those situations. So they, they were very, very under-equipped, under-trained and under-gunned in that situation. Sheila was inside the farmhouse. She had shotguns. She had um, a number of rifles. She even had a semi-automatic rifle, which made you know, the firing of, of multiple um, shots quite easy for her, you know, reloading with a magazine. You know. And obviously she was inside a locked farmhouse. And without Equipment such as night vision and, and the other sort of a, assault equipment that you would expect a firearm seem to have. It basically meant that the, the situation was, was not in the favour of the police. So they surrounded the farmhouse. Jeremy was kept at a safe distance with some other police officers. And at daylight, they entered the farmhouse. And my understanding of, of what happened is that during this process, Sheila shot herself in the kitchen downstairs. And whilst they were breaking down the back door, one of the officers actually maintained contact with Sheila on the floor. She didn't move. She had a, a gun next to her and a gunshot wound to her neck. And this enabled the police to be fairly sure when they were banging around at the back door that she wasn't waiting behind the back door with a, a shotgun. And they entered the house and their, their primary concern was then for the other family members that had been silent throughout the, 
the sort of siege situation, which had gone on a number of hours. They, they actually went up the wrong staircase to begin with and had to come down, and then they pushed their way into the kitchen. And as they did this, uh, Jeremy's father, who, who was deceased, on a chair behind the kitchen door was sort of toppled off. And he didn't groan or, or, or make any complaints. He was clearly deceased. And the, the objective of the police officers at that stage was actually to get to the kids, you know, the two young children, and the mother who were still unknown of their condition. They could have been seriously injured and, and in, in need of, of medical assistance, urgent medical assistance. And that was their sort of direction. And they, they went into the house very, very quickly and didn't check whether or not uh, Sheila was alive. Turned out that she was either unconscious or she was playing dead. They went upstairs. They found the other members of the, uh, the family deceased. From their point of view, everybody was deceased. And at that point, Sheila either regained consciousness and um, made her way back upstairs to obtain a weapon that was still loaded. The weapon that I understand she shot herself uh, in the kitchen was a, a single-shot weapon. It was not a weapon, and the other weapon that was actually in the kitchen was uh, no longer had ammunition. So she went using one of the three staircases inside the house upstairs and shot herself virtually immediately. The police then got to her fairly shortly after that and placed her in a recovery position. The second wound was a, an immediately fatal wound. There was, there was nothing they could do. And the police at that stage made, in my view, the right decision not to inform Jeremy of the actual detail of what happened. They kept the, the, the story very, very simple that Sheila had committed suicide and before she committed suicide, she had shot her kids and Jeremy and her parents and effectively everybody was deceased. There was no need to tell Jeremy the details of exactly what had happened for, for varied reasons. I can go into, the, the, I think, the logic behind that, but that's what happened. The only real issue inside the house was left was everybody inside the house had gunshot wounds to the head, which uh, I think most people understand, you know, immediately sort of fatal. But Sheila actually had two. And that, that was a bit of a problem because it's quite difficult to explain to people how you commit suicide by shooting yourself twice in the head. So that created a bit of a problem and people were going to ask maybe more questions than uh, the, the, the police team were going to be comfortable with. So the decision was made to swap the, the guns over, the gun that she had shot herself with to the gun that was actually found on Sheila. What they did is they swapped it over with the semi-automatic weapon. Now, if people don't understand a little bit about firearms, uh, a semi-automatic weapon is a weapon that reloads itself very quickly. It doesn't work like a machine gun. With every uh, trigger pull, you get one bullet being fired but sometimes these weapons malfunction and they become fully automatic and they can either continue in that until the, the magazine's empty or shoot two bullets in quick succession and that was the reason why the guns were swapped over and it was made into a, a, a one gun situation inside the farmhouse so people wouldn't ask too many questions. Now unfortunately the gun that they swapped over inside the farmhouse didn't actually all the guns didn't actually belong to the the family members inside the farmhouse one of the guns was owned by somebody who just kept their weapon inside the farmhouse so this is where things started to become a problem and after a five-week period of, of family pressure who knew the story that they were being told couldn't be true 
They were obviously concerned about exactly what did happen, probably rightly so. They had other concerns, I think, were motivated by other reasons. You can see the, the videos on, on the, uh, the website. But that's effectively where things went wrong, is the, the wrong gun was swapped over. And people began to, to know that what they were being told couldn't be true. And this placed the, the police in a rather difficult position. As I understand, the decision was initially a soft decision to try and divert attention away. But that, unfortunately made the press more interested in the case and generated more problems for Essex police in terms of their public handling of the case and actually sent things in a direction of, of not making things simpler but making things more complicated. And at some stage, as, as you all know, Jeremy was then formally charged and Jeremy was eventually convicted of the crimes. And that's pretty much the story that's uh, been rolled out over the last 30 years of, of Jeremy being framed uh, for things that he didn't do to take the uh, attention away from Essex Police. So that's the, the really relevance of, of why I say that's probably the, the question that people should be asking themselves is not whether or not Jeremy Bam is innocent, but they should, they should focus on more whether or not you know, he was framed and understand the, the, the reasoning behind that. And that sort of situation has sort of spiraled out. There's been quite a number of decisions over the the 30 years of withholding evidence. What I'd like to do, once people sort of understand now the exact sort of what happened in the case from my opinion, my understanding, I'd like to talk about maybe some of the, the roadblocks that are going to stop and have stopped Jeremy winning his freedom over the last 30 years. Because normally in these situations, if mistakes are made, they're corrected. But sometimes some of those things are, are not something that governments and police forces want to admit. I think people understand that now better in the, the, the sort of post um, Jimmy Savile and Hillsborough and, and you know, the, uh, the situations in Northern Ireland. People you know, grasp that, that governments and police don't always want to openly admit the, the truth of what happened. You know, shame, really, because I think there's, there's you know, benefits and improvements can be made. So what I'd like to do is, is talk maybe about some of the, the, the roadblocks in 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 detail. Um, this is one of the major roadblocks in the case. This is actually uh, a copy of a public interest immunity certificate, the same one that's actually in force over the majority of the evidence in Jeremy's case. I mean, a lot of the evidence is, is simply withheld, but there is a, a public interest immunity certificate. Uh, this one actually is, is from the Russian guy who was murdered in London using a radioactive poison. Um, it basically details that it's not in the public interest to know the details of the case. In this one, I think they were afraid of, of the international problems and the relations with Russia and, and the sort of things that that might have if, if the public knew what Russia was doing to certain people that had disagreed with uh, the leadership of, of Russia. So they signed a, a public interest immunity, which basically means a government minister has to review all the evidence and, and look at the, the, uh, the bigger picture and say, well, normally if somebody's murdered, we would uh, follow the rules of justice. But unfortunately, in this case, it's not in the public interest to know this. So we grant immunity that the evidence is, is put away. So Jeremy's case has one of these. Um, the critical thing is obviously that it, the evidence needs to be reviewed. So they need to know what they're talking about needs to be signed by a government minister. And in Jeremy's case, what it clearly does is give a very, very clear paper trail with a signature to the evidence being covered up. So point two that I mentioned with Jeremy's case, that, that roadmap, 
it can't be a mistake. It has to be that he's either guilty or he was framed, you know, because of the, the, the fact that the police were there and able to monitor the situation. So the public interest immunity would, would link the government to the cover-up if Jeremy was proven to be innocent. On this one, um, the signature is of uh, William Hague, which I think you, you all know who William Hague is. So in Jeremy's public interest immunity certificate, you, you can be pretty sure that it's going to be the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister's signature of the time uh, that it was signed here. So it would prove very, very embarrassing, not only for the police force and justice system, but it would also prove very embarrassing for the, the government. And these are one of the sort of things that I describe as, as the roadblocks to Jeremy winning his freedom. Um, normally, people understand that in a, a normal justice situation, you take the, the case of Stephen Avery. Stephen Avery was able to win his freedom because he had full access to all the, the evidence and was able to conduct DNA testing. And, and the justice system worked in a normal way to allow that individual to win his freedom on his first conviction. And, and a lot of people probably have the opinion that, that the same process is happening with Stephen Avery's second conviction. And that's something that, you know, Jeremy hasn't had the luxury of in his situation because of what I regard as, as sort of external roadblocks. There's other roadblocks. I mean, I can go into a lot of detail with them. Uh, one of the other ones I regard as a roadblock of the case is to do with the coroner. When people die of non-natural causes, they they're obviously go to the coroner. The coroner conducts sort of two initial sort of jobs, uh, tasks. They, they find out whether the person died of natural or non-natural causes. Everybody in, in the, the Jeremy Bamber case died of headshot, um, gunshot wounds to the head. Um, so that's fairly easy, non-natural causes. The second thing they do is they try and establish a time of death when people are murdered or, or die, uh, not naturally. The coroner tries to help the police by finding the people who are responsible. And when people die, you know, a few months later or years later, it's very, very difficult sometimes to establish time of death. In the first few hours of somebody dying, their body goes, undergoes rigor mortis and liver mortis and things like that. And, you know, it's very easy to sort of put a fairly close timescale on when that person actually died. So in Jeremy's case, uh, his sister's time of death, if she died when Jeremy was outside sat in the police car and the police was surrounding the house so nobody could get in or out, it would be a pretty absolute cast iron alibi that Jeremy wasn't responsible for the death of his sister inside the farmhouse, which would have changed the direction of the case very easily. So the time of death is very, very critical in Jeremy's case. Um, you're probably sort of a bit confused. Why is that a roadblock in Jeremy's case? Well, it's, it's only a roadblock when you understand who the actual coroner who would have given the time of death is. He's a guy called Peter Van Zesis. I, I always struggle with his, his surname. And he was actually the guy that um, looked at the, the circumstances behind the Princess Diana's death. And obviously, if Jeremy was shown to be innocent, it would then raise uh, some questions around exactly what did the coroner do around the time of death. And any questions around this particular coroner might overspill into other cases that he's related to. I think some people who have looked at some other cases might understand that if a, a, an expert witness gives expert witness and is later discredited, it, it kind of affects the, the cases that they've worked on before. And that's, that's a similar situation with coroners. Obviously, in this situation, that might spill over and might be a problem for other cases that the public are interested in. It's also probably interesting to know there's, there's a video online of Jeremy's real father 
carrying Princess Harry's birth certificate across the uh, the front forecourt of the Buckingham Palace and hanging it on Buckingham Palace Day. So these things, in my view, along with other things with the case, create sort of external roadblocks that might have an effect on Jeremy winning his freedom. I could talk a lot more about that. You know, there's a lot of other things that I've become aware of in working with the case, but I can go into too much detail and it, it loses people. But what I always want to refer back to is the, the three critical points that anybody needs to know about the case. That Jeremy's case is, is, is probably the most important case, you know, as a prisoner in the justice system for the last hundred years. It cannot be that Jeremy was mistakenly convicted. It has to be more related to this question that he was either framed or he's guilty. And if you want to know the truth, it's simply about opening some cardboard boxes of evidence in a forensic uh, um, depository or a, in an Essex police police station and simply reading the original handwritten reports to the why firearms were sent to the team or, or what the, the firearms team observed when they were outside the farmhouse and what they actually saw when they went in. Um, the original handwritten documents, like they did in Hillsborough, will be the, the, the thing that tells the truth. So it's not difficult to get to the truth. If you liken the case to maybe Hillsborough, you know, I know a lot of people passed away, but as my understanding with Hillsborough, the, the police actions on the day were not deliberately, they didn't say open the gate because we want to cause a crush and teach the fans a lesson. Um, I understand that it was a, a genuine mistake. I understand that none of the family were ever blamed for the murders of their, their kids and none of the families ever served any time in prison. Obviously, Jeremy has been in prison for more than 30 years and is convicted of, of the death. So, you know, that maybe helps people understand maybe a bit more who Jeremy really is and the, the importance of the, the case. What I don't want to do is say be pulled into the evidence. There's, there's more than enough of that online that people can sort of read. Um, one of the questions I've been asked to, to answer is, is what top three pieces of evidence make you believe Jeremy Bamber is innocent? I think people can, can, can read that themselves. And I would always advise people to remember that sort of framework. You know, if, if Jeremy's a really important case. Secondly, it can't be that he was mistakenly convicted. And with all of the discussions on all the evidence, if people want to know the truth, it would simply be a case of looking at the original handwritten reports. I mean, the Jeremy Bamber case is an incredibly well-documented case. I mean, some people are aware of the Amanda Knox case. And obviously, if, if people discovered that there was an entire police force surrounding the apartment in the Amanda Knox case, it would be a lot easier to say, well, what did those police officers observe in the critical hours around the, the time of the murder? It would be simple to discover what happened. And that's what we have in Jeremy Bamber's case. So with all the discussions with the evidence, and I'm, I'm not going to go into them, you know, I, I know the, the campaign team have recently found another suicide note for Jeremy's sister. I know there's, there's logs of, of the police being called by Jeremy's father and sending out police cars before Jeremy called. There's logs of them, you know, being in conversation with somebody inside the firehouse and, and things like that. But, you know, you can read about those. But the critical thing to remember, to get to the truth, it's not a case of looking at the evidence. It's simply just taking the original paperwork and see what it says. And it's, it's very, very easy to obtain the truth. Um, in terms of a, a sort of a, a final direction of the case, I'll probably share my own personal opinion of the case. I, I think there's a great deal of opportunity with the case. And this is something why I remain sort of involved in the case. That it's, it's very easy to get tied up with the, the, the negative side of the case and things like that. I mean, 
my opinion of Jeremy is Jeremy will always know he's innocent and Jeremy will, will pass away one day knowing he's innocent. That won't change. The, the future for Jeremy is, is always his family has passed away. There's no way you're going to bring back his family. And there's no way that you're going to return those lost years for Jeremy, even if he was released tomorrow. So Jeremy fights for his innocence. And I understand why he fights for his innocence. I have a lot of respect for that. But the trial was never about Jeremy and his innocence. I feel the trial was more about Essex police stopping people asking this question. Were they responsible? You know, what, are they, what was their involvement in what actually happened? So I kind of feel that Jeremy in the last 30 years and certainly at his trial has effectively been fighting the wrong battle. I think the battle is, is more about public image. And as long as Jeremy fights for his innocence, he, in my opinion, won't win. Uh, that's probably something that's quite difficult for maybe the, the campaign team to understand. It's something that I wouldn't say to Jeremy because I think you know, Jeremy has to gain a certain amount of momentum in it is his belief that he's, he's in the right direction. But I think that's something that Jeremy has, has, has not traveled in the right direction. I think it, it's better to, to take the focus rather from Jeremy Bambi's innocence and tell people very, very clearly what the case is about and explain to people that it's actually the taxpayers and the people who vote, the, the stakeholders in British society, who are really the people who are the beneficiaries and the losers of the, the case. As I say, Jeremy will always know, you know the truth. That's, that's for certain. But the people who vote for the politicians, don't forget the public interest immediately, forget, you know, the people who pay their taxes to maintain the police force and maintain the justice system and pay for the prisons and, and pay for the, 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 the government structure behind all of that, those are really the real losers in the case. I mean, if somebody pays for having their car serviced and they don't know whether the service and the brake pads have been changed and the oil has been changed, maybe they get a, a mechanical inspector to have a look and they come back and say, no, you, your oil's not been changed and your brake pads haven't been changed. And they know whether they're being ripped off. Well, I see Jeremy Bamber as very much like that person. He's kind of somebody who the general public can use to establish whether or not they're getting value for money in their political system and value for money in the taxes they're paying. And in, in that way, I see it as the, the, the Bambergate, the, the situation with the, the case with Jeremy Bamber, as a, as a very, very positive future. There's, there's lots to be gained from telling the truth to exposing the, the realities of, of what actually happened in the case. Um, I think these things are very, very, very positive. Obviously, at the moment, the balance is swinging very much in the favour against Jeremy. You know, the problems that are caused by acknowledging the truth and, and delving into the truth are, are, are probably make people make the decision to say, well, you know, it's not in our interest to do that. And, and governments have to sustain a certain amount of public confidence. Police have to sustain a certain amount of confidence. You know, they they're not going to be very, very comfortable people asking these sort of questions and focusing on them. They, they want the support from the public. But until the public understand the simplicity of the case and understand that really the case is about them, then I don't think you're going to get that balance changing. So I don't see the direction of the case being possible for Jeremy to win at the moment. What I think is needed is um, probably in the form of a, a television documentary. And the, the three 
key point of the case being very, very clearly explained to the viewer in, in simple thing of what the case is really about. You know, not talking masses about the evidence, simply saying the evidence is there to, to, to show the truth. It can't be that Jeremy has been mistakenly convicted. And Jeremy is a really critical prisoner because it's gone on for so long. It's, it's such a serious crime. It's, it's such a, a serious situation that if you show his innocence, it will have a really positive effect on the police and justice and appeals court system and the oversight from government that will probably last for many generations, many decades. You know, you know I come from an aviation background and when things go wrong in aviation, they, they, they conduct an investigation and they, they publish the truth, which is not always very pleasant to read. But the, the objective is to make aviation safer, to make it work better, to make it more efficient. And that's really kind of who I see Jeremy is, is a tool that the general public can use to make what they get more efficient, to get better value for money. And obviously the police to improve what they do and improve how they respond to, to requests for the original documents and things like that. So I see the future as a really good opportunity for things to be improved. And I try not to sort of focus on the, the slightly negative side of things. I think my, my respect for Jeremy is very, very deep. I regard him as a friend. I think he's a great person. I mean, you know, I exchange sort of letters with him. I've never actually met him. You know, I've never spoken to him, but the letters I get, you know, he, he comes across as a really nice guy. I think he, he's, a, he's a little bit too trusting and a little bit naive that he believes if he's innocent, that will be enough to sort of ride him through things. I, I think that his trial was not about his guilt or innocence. It was more about the public image of, of Essex police. And that's where I think the real solution lies, is that probably a television documentary along the basis of, of the sort of Stephen Avery format that people are told the truth and people can see the truth very, very clearly. Because I don't think that the general public are, are stupid. I think it's very easy to confuse them with the evidence. But I think if you tell them in a very clear format, and that's one of the things when I read articles and I watch television programs in English about the Jeremy Bank case, I look for those three critical messages. You know, are people telling people it's, it's a really important case? Are people telling the public that it cannot be that it's a mistake? It has to be that he was either guilty or framed you know, which is a really serious accusation to make of a, a police force and the subsequent police forces that have investigated and obviously the government that have signed the evidence into public interest immunity. And lastly, it's a really simple case to resolve because the evidence is just in a load of cardboard boxes. When I read, if I ever read those things online, I would think there's a better chance. But I, I think for probably that reason, I've seen a consistent admission by the press and the documentary makers and the book writers and things like that. So until that happens, I, I don't think that the, the, the direction of Jeremy's case will take a different turn. So I think probably the long-term solution is, is somebody outside of the UK. I think there was a documentary, where well, there was a documentary produced um, that was shown on primetime television, and it was produced by an ex-police officer who was from Essex, which probably, you know, Jeremy probably needs uh, somebody else to make a, a documentary and, and reveal those key points. So... Um, it's a brief interview. It's, it's hopefully something that people uh, find useful to hear my opinions on the case. I, as I say, there's, there's lots of other things being involved in quite a number of years with the case I, I could talk about. I'm not going to do that here. If people ever wanted to contact me, you know, they can get my details from the campaign team. I'm, I've always been very, very cooperative to anybody 
who who wants to move this case forward in, in a positive way. Over the years, I've been contacted by people who, who maybe don't want that same objective as I do. So, you know, there's a, a way if people have specific questions or want specific help with, with things, I'm, I'm always open to do that. Thank you for listening. I hope it's, it's been a bit of an eye-opener. I hope it's, uh, it's given people a very, very different perspective of the case than is, is normally talked about with people who, who conduct sort of interviews online. And I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. If you'd like to join our mailing list for the latest updates on the case as they happen, please email us via our website, www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk.